Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Francesca, one of your hosts today. I'm Kayla, a new host here on the podcast. And I'm Sam, excited to be joining you all virtually tonight, of course, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, as we're continuing to do the podcast over Zoom for the time being. Hi, everyone. I'm Karen. And as Sam said, we are doing the podcast through Zoom, which means the audio might be a bit different from what we're used to as we're not in our usual studio, but the stories are just as impactful as always. And I'm Leisha. Thank you for joining us tonight on the sixth episode of our fifth season entitled The Way Back Home. And I'm Alishba. In this episode, two authors are critical of the places they were raised in and have revelations over time about returning to the parts of home that they hold dear. Now, let's get into the first story of the night. This story is by an author who is choosing to remain anonymous. Anonymous is currently a sophomore at Toro College. Though she is pursuing a degree in computer science, her love of reading and writing, particularly lyrics for parodies, has been eminent from a young age. She hopes that one day her computer programs are as successful as her essays. Anonymous spends her free time painting, learning, reading, running, eating, talking to friends, and being allergic to her cat. She is extremely excited for whatever the future has in store for her. Let's take a listen to this piece by Anonymous entitled On the Ladder. The wind whistled through my ears as I soared down the block, each square of the sidewalk rushing to greet me before being swallowed by my tires. I was flying, at least biking without training wheels for the first time. I thought I was flying. I inhaled the sense of laundry detergent and adventure, my eyes narrowed in concentration. I was six years old and unstoppable. I pedaled around the cul-de-sac for round two, no longer needing to focus my eyes on the ground ahead of me. I observed the children coming out of their homes, perhaps to play or enjoy the radiant spring weather. A child standing in her doorway, staring. At me? What was there to see? I biked on, undeterred. A young boy playing in his yard. What is he pointing at? She's wearing pants! I was sure I heard him shout as he turned to his empty porch. I biked on, uncomfortable. I felt eyes all around me, gazes creeping menacingly towards my embroidered capri jeans and $5 t-shirt from the children's place. Were they really that different from the sweeping bedtime robes, the pleated skirts and buttons and collars? I was a regular kid. They were regular kids. I was Jewish. They were Jewish. So why did I feel so out of place? I reached the end of the block and turned around because crossing the street was certainly forbidden without an adult. I biked home, uncertain. <sighs> Growing up in Lakewood, New Jersey would be a transformative experience for any Jewish child. My case, however, is particularly unique as I was raised in a home more modern Orthodox than my neighbors. 
My parents both began their journeys into religious observance later on in life, building a beautiful home with four daughters as they continued to delve deeper into Judaism. We moved into town after my father got a new job, Lakewood being the closest Jewish community. My parents did not know much about the city, save for the fact that it appeared to have lovely lakes and woods. We settled with no expectations or opinions regarding the community. Observation and experience allowed us to form our own. While we shared the same Jewish pride and desire to practice religion as our neighbors, we were not born into the wealth of knowledge that they, and so many, take for granted. Jews such as they, lovingly nicknamed from from birth, enter the world into a family of practicing Jews, learning early on all the nuances of the religion. They start from a high rung of the ladder and continue to climb. My family was also ascending this ladder. I was ascending this ladder. I'm still ascending this ladder. But nobody shares the same starting point, and no two journeys are the same. Even before the incident on the bike, I felt the stirrings of certain realizations. The first arose when my sister and I clambered onto a musty van on the first day of my kindergarten year. We slid shyly to the back of the vehicle, the stained cushions sagging beneath us as the frightening middle schoolers were picked up one by one from surrounding neighborhoods. Shouts, laughter, and paper balls ricocheted around the van. I peered anxiously out the window, my breath fogging the glass as I bared the unfamiliar 45-minute trek to school. Why did we not have a carpool like our neighbors? Even more perplexing, why did we not go to school with our neighbors? At age five, I did not understand nor did I really care. I enjoyed my school, my friends there, and spending my free time with my family. Now, however, I do understand. My parents did not fit the criteria of the prime base Yaakov mother and father, and therefore my sister and I were not deemed acceptable for the higher standards of the local religious schools. My father wore jeans, and my mother did not cover her hair, so perhaps the Lakewood system would not be for us. We were too different, we would not be accepted because as a unit, we did not adhere to every rule and regulation that applied to the students' homes. Whether this was for our comfort or for the comfort of the rest of the student body, I believe, is a matter of perspective. Understandable? I remember my first day of camp, the summer after first grade. My parents had decided to homeschool me for the year, and I thought it had been a great success. I had learned from big kid textbooks, and even had the good fortune of my grandmother visiting every week in what I aimlessly dubbed Mosquito School, in order to engage me and my sister in the creative arts. Even so, like every child, I eagerly awaited summer vacation. Come June, I clambered down the steps to the basement of the camp building, where all of the campers were gathering for morning lineup and prayer. The counselors issued their first directive, Everyone take a sitter and say Moda'ani! I saw my fellow campers grab prayer books from a table and flip to the correct pages in earnest, their lips whispering the morning prayer. I, too, grabbed a sitter from the table and opened it. I flipped through the dog-eared pages, copying their motions, hoping that nobody would notice me. They would not understand if I told them that I did not know the correct page. I had not climbed that rung. I did not know how to read Hebrew. I did not yet know how to pray. Though my family moved out of Lakewood after my seventh birthday, while I was still splashing in the refreshing pool of youthful naivety, I am surprised at how much I internalized in those years. Indeed, several occasions like my eventful bike ride have carved themselves into my memory, for better or for worse. Many in my position might reflect upon this and feel targeted, resentful, or even embarrassed. But I am not angry or upset at my childhood peers 
those stalwart judges who needed no gavel to declare their verdict. My neighbors, along with the majority of the children in the community, were never introduced to the other side. They were raised in what one may call a religious bubble, taught to live and practice religion in a certain way. The recognizable Jew was one who wore the appropriate clothing, performed the proper commandments, attended the suitable institutions. This could be a prominent factor in understanding their attitude towards those who do not fit into the mold of their quintessential community member. They had simply not comprehended that there were members of this religion who did not fit into this mold. Touching on this concept, philosopher Tara Smith, in an article defining justice, notes that justice is the virtue of judging other people objectively and of acting accordingly. Judging others objectively means honestly evaluating all available evidence to determine what they deserve. Certainly, the girl who stared at me as I whizzed down the streets with my elbows bared, and the boy who pointed as I peddled in my jeans, did not possess all available evidence to properly make any assumptions about me. They barely knew my name, much less my personality or religious methodologies. They knew their way, and their way was the right way. They saw my current position on the ladder, but they were not focusing on my climb. Unaware. Lack of exposure to other views or lifestyles inherently leads to subjective thinking, and subjective thinking is accompanied by judgment and scrutiny, whether intentive or inadvertent. With this in mind, it makes perfect sense why Smith explains that being just hinges on being objective. One cannot act fairly with his peers if he has a biased image painted in his mind. This connects to a study conducted and explained in an article for the Journal of Experimental Psychology, Human Perception and Performance. The researchers, citing additional studies, explain, even older children and adults still show strong biases towards their own perspective, especially when reasoning about what someone else knows or thinks. It has been suggested that such biases reflect, in children and adults, an automatic or default activation of self-perspective that needs to be corrected or inhibited. It is natural for humans to allow certain biases or lifestyles to affect their thinking and observations, especially when it comes to other humans. The average observer can argue that my more right-winged acquaintances made presumptions about me and my way of life before learning my perspective, before getting to know the truth about me. It is possible to refute, however, that there are simply multiple truths. Under the umbrella of halacha, Jewish law, there are certain ordinances that all religious Jews recognize as incontrovertible, and there are other areas that are subject to more debate and interpretation. Some Jews believe in learning Torah all day, while others believe in the balance between material and spiritual toil. Some allow their children to watch television, some monitor internet usage, and others refrain from technology completely. There is a certain beauty and purity in the sheltered upbringing of my childhood neighbors that I have come to respect and even appreciate. After all, the world can be a harmful and corrupt place. Living in a close-knit Jewish community means that one's family is surrounded by like-minded individuals. Children are provided with agreeable friends and innocuous means of entertainment. And a variety of Jewish institutions, such as schools and synagogues, are available nearby. Fewer distractions, fewer temptations, or means to stray from the straight. At the same time, however, tolerance and courtesy towards fellow human beings, especially those of the same religion, are of utmost importance. It is possible that with age comes maturity in this mindset, or perhaps it is developed through proper teaching and parenting. It is impossible to blame a mere location for how one interacts with those around him. Giving the proper honor to one's fellow is an inherently Jewish value, 
proven in the renowned words of Leviticus, you shall love your fellow as yourself. As long as no moral, legal, or civil boundaries are being pushed, it is befitting to say that even the most flagrant outlier in one's enclave deserves the proper treatment, undoubtedly. <sighs> my family moved out of Lakewood in the middle of my second grade. While again, a new job was the primary factor, it would be remiss to say that joining a new Jewish community was not a significant component of the switch. My parents were overjoyed that their children would finally have friends to play with and local schools that would be happy to accept them. I was overjoyed that this new community had a kosher Dunkin' Donuts, never mind the new friends or neighbors or schools. My father became the gabbai of our synagogue, ensuring the well-being of each new or existing member. I graduated the local elementary school with a vibrant group of friends, the captain of the division-winning hockey team, as well as student council president. I had acquired all of the tools necessary in order to succeed in high school, where I was surrounded by a wholly new and unfamiliar sect of Jews, the Syrian community. At first, I felt exposed and under scrutiny. I was not the same as these girls. I was part of the Ashkenaz minority, living in one town while the rest of the girls lived in Brooklyn or Deal, New Jersey. I did not attend the same schools as them, share their Arabic slang, or speak with their Syrian inflections in Hebrew or English. But I now had the knowledge and confidence to break through the barriers between myself and my classmates. This same knowledge allowed me to interact with my schoolmates without my personal bias blurring my judgment. I chose not to focus on how some girls treated their education lightheartedly because the assumption was that they would marry soon anyways, or how others put so much emphasis on their clothing or image due to communal pressures. Each individual was unique, with her own struggles and strengths and positive qualities, her own ladder to ascend. I was nervous, but I was prepared. Undaunted. I can now appreciate my town for all it has provided my family with, a chance to continue spiritual, personal, and social development without any feelings of discomfort or pressure. I'm thankful to have had this backdrop for the formative years of my childhood. Even so, the observant eye can see change sifting into my neighborhood. New families are moving in. Families from more right-wing communities like the one we left. The student body of the co-ed elementary school that I attended is teetering, while the all-girls school continues to absorb the wave of new children. <sighs> It is a popular aphorism that history repeats itself. Again, whether this is positive or negative is a matter of perspective. It is how we respond and react to the circumstances of the present that makes the difference. The wind was stagnant as I jogged out of my house and raced down the block, each square of the sidewalk a stepping stone catapulting me to my undetermined destination. I had recently returned home from a year abroad studying Judaic topics in Jerusalem, I was proudly sporting a long sleeve running shirt, sleeves rolled slightly up, elbows covered. My skirt swished over my leggings with every stride I took. Inhale three counts, exhale two. Unstoppable. I tightened the armband that was carrying my phone, checking my pace as I approached the home of my old art teacher. Her young children were outside, perhaps playing or enjoying the summer day, staring at me. My feet pounded the pavement as I dashed to distance myself from the wordless interrogation. An odd sensation was sneaking into my core, edging its way into my brain. Unexplainable. I finished my route and headed home. My new neighbors across the street were outside, the children and their friends lounging in lawn chairs on their driveway and whispering. What were they discussing? I turned my back to them and marched to my door. I felt the familiar perception of gazes menacingly creeping towards me. In all reality, 
these stalwart judges were likely talking about their day at camp or planning a basketball game. I may have been running outdoors, but I was dressed properly. No knees, no elbows, no jeans. There was no verdict to give, was there? I have had 12 years to ponder this question, and I am still uncertain. Unbelievable. Oh, wow. I... I love it. I love that in part. It's just, it's just really powerful. Like watching you in our heads, march up to the door and be like, maybe it's not about me. It's, it's so, it's so cool to see that shift throughout the story. So thank you so much Anonymous for being here today and sharing that with us. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Of course. And just to jump into it, you, you use this repetition, like we saw just there at the end, of words that begin with un at the end of paragraphs, like uncertain, unaware, understandable with that question mark and undoubtedly and so on. And that really intrigued me to see, obviously I was able to read the story and everyone listening was able to hear it. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that choice and how you used it to drive the story forward? Sure. So um, when we were given this essay, Um, as a project, it was to write about uh, some sort of injustice that has happened to us or something that we witnessed. Um, And whenever I write stories or I write essays, I I don't want it to just be about the content. I want it to be, um, I want to take the reader really on a journey and have, have them, give them really something to pay attention to as they're reading. So I figured um, it started off, you know, I just I noticed kind of a pattern with some words that sounded similar. So I figured if I can continue this um, unaware, uncertain, all these different words that they connected to whatever I was talking about at the time, but it kind of brought the reader on the journey with me, whether something was a question or whether something was a statement or a feeling. So I thought it would just um, kind of make the essay more interesting to read. And it also helped me think about what my feelings were at the time were really my thoughts on the matter. So it also brought me on the process too. Mm. Awesome, that's so cool. So regarding the unknown, in your story, you focus on how the Jewish community in Lakewood, New Jersey viewed you through a judgmental lens. This can especially be seen when you make a metaphor stating, but I am not upset or angry at my childhood peers. Those stalwart judges who needed no gavel to declare their verdict. Later on, you move into a new Jewish community that you feel accepted in. You were able to make new friends and enjoy the rest of your years in elementary school. Can you speak on what in this new Jewish community made you feel more at place? Did the children there have less judgmental views or were they not raised in a religious bubble compared to the children from Lakewood? Yeah, so I think um, it's kind of a mixture of a few different reasons. So I would say that definitely the community itself is different from Lakewood in the sense that, A, it was more diverse um, and it wasn't just kids were raised in um, a very religious bubble that they didn't see, they didn't see any other different styles of religion. It was more um, a bunch of different types of Jews living here. And it's also where we're mixed in with the, with the secular environment around us. We see all different types of kids and also in different 
in different communities that are there are different you know levels of religion so for example in in our community we have seven different synagogues at least and each one has you know a different a different take um just a little different nuance of how they practice religion how they pray how you know how they go about their day so the community that we found ourselves in after we moved it was it was just slightly more something that we were that we were comfortable with and um a little more probably in tune with modern society but still um keeping up with jewish law um so keeping the fundamentals of the religion so that was something that um, was really important to us and so it was easier for me and my siblings to relate to the kids who were around us because um they were able to you know they were able to treat us the same way that we were able to treat treat them so um it was it was a great environment to be in nice and you can like feel that shift in the story of like Mm -hmm. more air because it's such a descriptive story you really immerse us in everything and as you observe things it is definitely mm -hmm. in a way where you just it feels like less is is crowding you and you're able to kind of even like at the end there kind of just not not think so hard about what everyone else might be thinking you know you, you can you you make it visual in the story in a way yeah, definitely. And that was also part of the part of the project that we had to do was not just take the story, but we had to um, be able to immerse the reader using uh, different, you know, imagistic, um, uh, Im imagistic details. So um, that was something that I also tried to focus on. Thanks. Hmm. Um, so relating back to like communities. Um, throughout your piece, you speak about how close-knit communities tend to expect others to conform to their norms. These expectations tend to overcome their tolerance to people who appear different from what is common within those communities. In the story, you wrote that it is possible that with age comes maturity in this mindset, or perhaps it is developed through proper teaching and parenting. It is evident that you have had a more tolerant mindset during your childhood, in part due to the fact that you experienced pr prejudice throughout your community's expectations of you. Do you have any ideas on how children can be taught to be more open-minded towards others who do not practice the same religion or views? That's a really great question. Um, so how kids can be taught, I think, seeing others live by example is a huge part of how you yourself can learn so if you're surrounded by people who you know appreciate the human beings that are around them and you see the you see the good in other people then it's easier for you to kind of follow that which is why if you're within a community that tends to judge other people you're just gonna you're gonna do what you see around you um so if you have you know role models that that help guide you in that sense that's really important. And it's also just, it's something that I think each individual has the power to work on if, if they tried. And, and if you kind of look outside yourself and outside of your immediate circumstances, try putting yourself in other people's shoes. Um, those are all different ways that you could, that you could really try to um, open up your boundaries in that sense, I think. Yeah. 
for sure. Thank you for that. Yeah, I feel like a lot of it has to do with right at home and like how parents speak to their children too and like what they expose them to. Um, But I feel like it's most important to you know, sit down and talk to your child and not let them have this mindset that like what you guys do is the only thing to be valued or the only thing to be accepted. So just kind of like giving them that insight to other groups of people and their values so that they learn to be more inclusive, which is something that my parents didn't do. And I kind of just had to, you know, learn later later on in life and before that it kind of made me like you know like judgmental of other people like for a long time I'll admit uh-huh I know how you mentioned earlier that you wanted to take like your readers on a journey and I really felt like I was going through a journey when I was reading your story especially when you talked about the different environments when the first environment, you have a lot of pressure, you have a lot of eyes watching you. So you want to, in a sense, be perfect. You want to do things the proper way, but there really isn't no proper way. And then at the end, you get this more fresh lens where you have new experiences, you meet new people, and you're just exposed to different cultures, not just your own that you're still adjusting to, but mm-hmm. a lot of different cultures, a lot of different people. So I think that was really cool. And lastly, what, if anything, would you like listeners to take away from this story? Um, First of all, thank you. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, I think some important messages that, you know, you see in the story, and it's just also things that are important to know is that, A, you really, um, you shouldn't let yourself be defined by the environment around you. You shouldn't feel, you shouldn't feel the pressure to to do things one way just because everyone is doing it and if, if, if there's some things that you know if it's the right thing then you do the right thing and if if you know that there are you know different ways to approach life and you feel that one route is more comfortable and you can achieve more in that direction you you should um you should really be able to go out and achieve that and then there's the second note of if other people are doing something that you don't think is perhaps your way. Um, you, maybe they're, they're doing it for their own reason. You don't necessarily know. And of course you can, um, you can try to guide people towards what you think is right, but each individual really sets out on their own path and their own journey in life. Um, and so respect towards others is huge and appreciation of diversity is also um, really important. And you just really, it's really important that everyone that everyone achieves their individual successes. So yeah, just huge lessons of really society, yeah, different just societal and individual pressures and achievements. And yeah, those are some important notes that I tried to touch on. Yeah, 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 you touch on them, you did, you did, you definitely did. Well, to wrap up, thank you so much Anonymous for being on our show. We hope to have you again, again, Amazing story, wonderful story. Please continue to write. Thank you so much. Thank you. This story is by an author that has previously hosted and written stories on the podcast, Sarah Ali.
Sarah Ali graduated from John Jay with a bachelor's degree in English. She currently tutors youth through a nonprofit organization. She enjoys writing, painting, and meditating. Sarah hopes to someday publish an anthology of writing portraying the lives of Indo-Caribbean women. Let's take a listen to Sarah's story entitled Mom. 2005. Sarah, can you go heat up her bottle? Mom asked me. My feet quickly shuffle as my socks help me glide on the tiles of the kitchen floor. Even though it's a school night and I should already be asleep, I don't mind helping out with my baby sister. I like it. Since Naima was born, I lay by her side, tapping her back until she can no longer fight off her sleep. Sometimes I end up fighting with my two other sisters, Mia and Khadija, just so I can spend the night in the same room as her. We're supposed to take turns, but I really enjoy taking care of Naima. 2007. It's 4 a.m. and all of a sudden my alarm goes off playing Burning Up by the Jonas Brothers. It almost feels as if my soul slams into my body as I jump out of bed. Guys, wake up. We have to start getting ready. I tell Khadija and Mia, my voice brimming with excitement. Our grandparents are taking us and our Aunt Asiya on a trip to Canada to see some of our family. For me, Khadija and Mia, it's our first time traveling to another country. I wonder what people will be like there. Will I see a moose? What's the temperature going to be like compared to Brooklyn? But I'm too busy packing the rest of my things to think about the answers to any of those questions. Don't forget to pack snack and ting to keep all your um, busy on the drive. It's gonna be a long one, mom warns. Knowing that she's not messing around when she uses her Trinidadian accent, I quickly toss my Nintendo DS into my backpack and some coloring books. I'm ready to go. We've been driving for hours and my legs are starting to fall asleep. If there's one thing I love about the long drives though, it's looking at the scenery from the window. The weather is now starting to warm up since it's spring, but most of the trees look naked since they haven't grown back their leaves. The sky is a dull gray and there aren't any animals in sight. I still spend most of the drive looking out the window anyways. After we arrive and settle in the hotel, we go to visit some family that me and the girls never even knew existed. Come and meet your aunt and uncle, oh, and here's your cousin from your grandpa's side of the family. My grandparents introduces us to so many people, I can't even remember their names. All the adults say, you all are Cheryl's daughters? Wow, oh, you're so big and look just like your mother. I guess we don't mind being told we look like our mom because we don't even live with our dad. To our relief, there are at least some younger kids there, like Jamil and Layla. They're twins, probably five years old. Layla, wearing a bright blue dress, is slightly taller than Jamil. He immediately warms up to me as he makes his way onto my lap and shows me his green toy car. When I'm bigger, I'm gonna buy a green Toyota Camry, he declares. Is green your favorite color? I ask. I'm never really sure how to keep a conversation with little kids. He continues on about how he loves green and he can't wait to drive so he can pick up his friends when he gets a car. As one of my aunts turns to another, she says, Oh, look how she is with Jamil. She go make a good mom. I feel a tight knot begin to form in my stomach as my jaw tightens. I'm not even in high school yet and they're concerned about me being a mother? Part of me expects these kind of comments being in a West Indian family, but it still upsets me deep down. Layla gains my attention as she tries to get Jamil to go with her. 
I can tell she's jealous that her twin brother is talking to me, practically a stranger, but I know what it's like to be protective of my siblings too. 2011. Mom, can you help me with this test I have coming up for algebra? My friend Timmy asked me teasingly. I just started my freshman year of high school and I made tons of friends already. They all refer to me as mom in an endearing sort of way. No matter what the subject be, I find a way to help my friends get good grades, even if it comes to cheating on a test. Part of my ego feeds off people relying on me, I guess. In gym class, my friends and I sit in a circle, but one of them seems a little distant. Nicole just doesn't seem focused on the gossip at all. At first, I don't say anything, but when our waste of a time advisory class rolls around, I sit next to her and wait for her to talk. There's something I have to tell you. She pauses for a bit as she looks down and fidgets with her fingers. I think I might be pregnant. While I can feel my anger building over something I thought my girlfriends were smart enough to avoid, I hold myself back, not wanting to turn into an enemy. I took a pregnancy test and it says that I am. I told my mom and she's taking me to the doctor, but I just don't know what to do, she continues. I arrive at the cafeteria before my first period gym class the next day and go over to Nicole and the other girls. Nikki, you know Angelina is crazy, right? If she says she wants to fight you, she will, Saida tells Nicole. Whoa, what's going on? I quickly ask. The guy Nikki is with right now is Angelina's ex, and she's pissed. She said she wants to fight her for taking her man. My eyes begin to roll as I hear how stupid the words coming out of their mouths sound. Is this seriously what we should care about right now? Plus, Nicole has bigger problems to deal with, I think to myself. I shrug it off as we head to the locker room to change. It's pretty cramped trying to fit into the only girls' bathroom and locker room in the building. They even took out the mirrors to keep the girls from staying in there too long, fixing their hair and clothes. We're trying to change as fast as we can before Angelina and her crew show up. But I hear the whispers start as soon as she enters. I'm standing in front of Nicole. She marches over to where we are and I can see her fists tighten. Damn, are we seriously going to do this? A locker slams shut and we're all surprised, including myself, until we realize I was the one who slammed it. Come on, it's too early for this shit. We're not here to be messing around and getting in trouble. My voice sounds stern, but I can feel my heart pumping faster than it does when we take the pacer test. Angelina and I lock eyes until she walks away. I exhale, realizing I was holding my breath the entire time. You know, I'm really glad I told you about what was going on. You're like a mom, Nicole tells me later. Just try to stay out of trouble, okay? I tell her with a warm smile. 2012. Did you do the math homework? Saida asked me. Nah, I completely forgot about it. I say as I fake a laugh. I actually did do the homework, but I'm tired of just giving out my help to all of my friends. Sometimes I think they wouldn't even bother to get to know me last year if I didn't help them with homework or cheat on tests. I feel sick of being taken advantage of. 2014. I can't wait till you finish high school so you could get married and have a big family, my grandmother tells me. I let out a laugh without any restraint not caring if I'm being rude. When I was younger, my grandmother was my best friend. I would sing songs from our favorite Indian movies, and before we moved from Florida to live in New York with her, I would cling to the walls, begging to stay with her. 
But now, she encompasses everything I hate. Organized religion, West Indian traditional values, otherwise known as making excuses for ignorance, and internalized misogyny. Learned that one last year in an English project on women's rights. I refuse to be polite at this point. Listen, I'm not even going to think about getting married, let alone have kids, until I have my degree. Do you want me to end up like more than half of the women in our family that can barely support themselves after their pathetic husbands leave them? Oh, and they never take the kids when they leave either, I spit back. You have no idea how long I was waiting to tell her that. I knew it would only be a matter of time until she told me that again. Ever since I got closer to graduating, she keeps bringing up marriage as a means of reproduction and religious purposes, more so than love. She even went as far as trying to convince me to marry a Muslim man that my aunt had turned down. I didn't even consider myself to be Muslim anymore, but I'm afraid she might die of a heart attack if those words slip off my tongue. Telling her that I don't want kids isn't an option either. 2015. You know Sarah doesn't like hugs, Nisi says. We're reminiscing about our days in high school during our girls' night with our friends and my sisters. We have been friends since freshman year of high school and she still has a hard time giving me a hug. It's not that I don't want to. There's just something about physical displays of affection that's just awkward for me. When I was in middle school, I loved hugging my girlfriends and playing with their hair, but now the friendships I have deal more with being able to debate or discuss intense political issues. My older sister even warns me that guys might find my involvement with politics unattractive, even masculine, but I don't care. I mean, I kind of hate the person I was through middle school and most of high school. I wore makeup every single day and put on dresses in the middle of freezing New York winters. Plus, let's not forget how much of a pushover I was. 2018. Babe, can I have a kiss? My partner Brandon asked me. I'm hesitant. He's so nurturing and affectionate. Why can't I be the same for him? I ponder. Brandon is absolutely the most amazing person to me. He's a vegan chef, so he always cooks me delicious vegan meals, and he does cute stuff all the time, like kissing my forehead and warming up my hands with his when mine get too cold. But I struggle to do the same for him. A few days later, I'm at my grandmother's house. You know, in Islam, it's important for women to be good wives and mothers is our duty to raise the children. My grandmother goes on for probably the millionth time now. Then the words, she'll be a good mother, starts banging around in my brain and it all clicks. I begin to think about my incapability of being nurturing and all the reasons I don't want kids, besides the fact that birthing seems like a terrifying process. It's the constant pressure, the pressure of knowing that most of society just views women as objects for procreation and marriage. And if she doesn't want those things, something is wrong with her. It seems like I have no say in the matter unless I want to live a life deemed unacceptable by the norms of my family and society. Later that night, I hide under my blanket crying, thinking about the mistake I've made and what I had done to myself. Rather than letting myself be the person that came naturally to me, I made myself feel like if I was even slightly feminine or nurturing, I was giving in to what everyone else wanted. I made myself cold. Twenty seventeen. It's the last day of my creative nonfiction class. I had asked my mom to bake cupcakes so I can share them out with my class, and I wrote every one of my classmates individual Christmas cards. 
As I hand them out, one of my classmates, Barbara, a woman who's older than the rest of the class by at least 35 years, turns to me and says, you're so maternal. I pause, but then I laugh and respond, and I don't even want kids. You don't need to have kids to be maternal. I don't have any kids. I stand there for a moment feeling foolish because the entire semester, I'd assume she was a mother. I guess you're right, I tell her. 2021. Though I still don't plan to give birth, something has changed. I'm empathetic, but no longer a pushover. I'm loving, but headstrong. No more do I cut off the parts of myself associated with the maternal. No longer do I repress my body's ability to create joy and express affection. Maybe I'm on a journey to rediscover the parts of myself I once abandoned, the parts I learned to resent. Maybe... I'm finding a way to understand who I am without the weight of everyone else's judgments. Maybe I'm becoming a mother to myself, nurturing a rebirth of who I want to be. Wow. That oh, was really powerful. That was good. Yeah. So um, identity and mothering seem to be a really strong theme in your story. So when it comes to mom and mother, there's such big and powerful words that you repeat throughout the story. It's a curse almost and a blessing at times. What's an aspect of the power behind the word mom that you've learned to understand better since writing the story? And as you discussed with your classmate, Barbara, how does that differ from the descriptors like maternal? Um, I think the word mom specifically comes into play because at least for me, like in the story and when it's like my first time that the word really like resonates with me was from that memory of when somebody tells me like, oh, she's going to make a good mom. Mm, yeah. so I think that's why in the beginning, like it resonates like that. And I feel like in terms of like how the definition or how the word mom, um, I guess, changes throughout the piece or how I felt like during writing it and after writing it, I definitely say I've come to understand that there is like a bad and good, just like any label, any name, like the bad side of it is that there's these expectations and these, you know, societal pressures that come onto us um, as women, especially as people who are um, thought of to be moms or people, everybody mm -hmm. else in their life expects them to be a mom at some point. And then there's the good side of it where it's very nurturing and maternal, like how maternal is like the description of it, like being maternal, I feel like, or the word maternal is like the act of like being a mom in a way. Mm -hmm. So like maybe that's why for me, that's where the descriptor maternal separates from like the word mom. Um, at least for the piece, when it pertains to the piece. Yeah. Right. Not one in the same. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That distinction is, it's, it's just so important. And watching you kind of come to the realization that like, no, one of these things I hate because it is imposed upon me. And then the other thing is just part of me and is something that I do cherish. It's also interesting too, because um, beyond like the societal expectations for for women to be mothers there's also once you become a mother there's like high expectations like you have less room for mistakes like you're mm -hmm. supposed to have it right right away when it comes to mm -hmm. maternal like you're supposed to have those instincts have it down packed and you're just perceived and judged way differently than the other person the other person that's in the process of creating a child mm -hmm. and it's it's just crazy like when it comes to like the pressure and perception expectations and all of that right yeah you're right I just want to say that after I, I didn't 
think that I prescribed to those sorts of things at all. And, and after I became a mother, um, when my mom and my mother-in-law would say things to me, like just even casually, they'd be like, oh, she's such a good mom. I was like, so proud. Like, I was like, really? You think so? And like, I clung to it. And I was like, why do I care what they think? I know I'm a good mom. And it like yeah. messed with me that I cared so much. You know, I was like, why do I need this validation? Why is this so important? What is this? It's like condition for women, especially like to like when people like praise us for just being a woman in their eyes in some way, like. Right. Right. So Sarah, growing up in a culturally dynamic situation can help you see the world so much differently. How have you learned to appreciate aspects of your cultural experience and how have you been able to more clearly see other cultural experiences thanks to that? Um, that's a great question. I feel like even outside of the piece, I don't really discuss like when I was younger, I kind of suppressed a lot of my own culture. I think because of it was even from that association of like, you know, motherhood and all those things from early on because of my family's culture, us being Indo-Caribbean, like those things are very important. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that did kind of create a little bit of a disconnect when I was younger. Yeah. And as I got older, then I started to appreciate my culture a little bit more because as an adult, I can decide what parts I take from it, what traditions I want to keep from it. And yeah, if there's something I don't agree with, I can like cut it out, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, was that the whole question? I feel like, <laughs> did I skip No, it? that's great. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, you answered it, yeah. yeah. It's important <laughs> to take agency of that too. Um, as, you, as you grow up, you realize you actually have that choice. Like you have a, a choice to appreciate the things that really influenced you. Mm-hmm. They kind of like see them in a new light too. Um, kind of part of that too is that throughout the piece, there seems to be kind of a simmering sense of rebellion behind your story um, that informs a lot of your perspective. Uh, what were some of your favorite quiet ways to rebel against the culture, cultural pressures you faced? And how do you feel like that's kind of informed your personality now? Oh, there's so many ways I think that I've been able to rebel against culture because I feel like there's so many restrictions. It's so easy to just break one of those boundaries and break one of those rules. So like when I was younger, I would cut my hair. I would have a pixie cut. <laughs> Never had my hair as long as it is now, which is like, you know, up to my shoulders and longer. Like I would always have a pixie cut. Me and my sisters all dyed our hair, like different colors. And like all that, I feel like was definitely as like as much as it was to be in rebellion to like the things that people were telling us to do it was also because we wanted a right to express ourselves and if we wanted to do those things we wanted that option to do it you know rather than be told no right away Mm -hmm. or learning these limitations so young and then thinking that's all life can ever be for you or oh I really can't ever dye my hair or cut it short because people are going to think I look like a boy or people Mm -hmm. are going to think I look crazy like um so growing out of those definitely I think doing that rebellious stuff helped me grow out of it a bit so it was important Yeah, because then you also get to like do it and you get to say that you did it. And sometimes in doing that, like in cutting your hair short, you can be like, maybe this isn't the look for me or something like that. Like I remember when I was a kid just really wanting to just like be super rebellious and dye my hair all purple. And one day (laughs) my parents were because I I grew up Salvadorian. Mm-hmm. And that's just not something you do because you you just look ridiculous. Like that's what we're taught. And um, one day my parents were traveling without me and I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to dye my hair purple. <laughs> and I put the dye in and 
I was like, this is not the look. And I watched that so quickly. It was in there for maybe two minutes. I watched that so quick. And then I was like, yeah, I, did, I wasn't dying my hair purple because I wanted to dye my hair purple. I wanted to, I wanted to dye my hair purple because I was taught that I shouldn't have my hair purple, you know? Right. You just wanted the option, the option to be like, I can do this if I want to do this. Yes, yeah. yes, the agency. And, and sometimes in doing that, you realize hmm, maybe this isn't it because right. you know, what's driving you is that want to kind of rebel against that machine another time you fall in love I rocked my purple hair for so long I really debated dyeing my hair purple again right now (laughs) (laughs) so sometimes it clicks and sometimes you're right like you just wanted to try it so you can know like and at least you did it while you were young nobody's gonna judge you because you don't have to work with your crazy hair like yeah absolutely (laughs) definitely So is there anything that you would like listeners to take away from the story? I think it's that you can't give labels as much power as like the people around you want it to have. So like for me, like obviously in the piece, the label of being a mom or a mother, like that after I realized it has the power that I want to give it for myself, like that's when my relationship changed with the word. And that's when my relationship with myself even changed as I understood that. I don't have to suppress this part of me just because everybody else thinks this is what a mom is and this is what I should be doing or have these expectations as I get older as a woman and become a mother like you know so I think the main thing I would want them to take away is just again like you have the power to give words your own meaning as well it doesn't just have to be what everybody else wants it to be for you yeah yeah that's a great takeaway great takeaway yeah I also think there's like a lesson in the like coming back to something like just because you've sworn something off Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you can't change your mind and come back to it in a new way. Mm -hmm. Just something like every moment is a new and renewed choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's just that allowance of like being able to transition and at one point have this belief or one point have this belief like it was just like through the story like I wasn't allowed to do that and like excuse me, that's why that is so important, like having that freedom to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me too, like when it comes to culture and like tradition, like there have been things where like I've asked my mom, like, why are you this, why are you this way? Or why does it have to be like this? And she'll tell me because that's how it was when she was growing up. And it's like with with you or me, like we recognize like the the importance of like um, exploration and being able to realize on your own, like this hair color is not it. So, you know, if you decide to have your own kids, like you're going to have that in mind when you're raising them. Like there's no need to continue with this mindset just because that's what's established as quote unquote culture or tradition. Like, you know, I just always find it weird that like, we just accepted, like, this is just how it is, you know, that's, you know, a socially constructed thing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be that way. Right. Yeah. Especially toxic things. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Anything that removes agency. And I do think it all kind of like goes back to choice. And I think what's important about this story and uh, the or- other story that's in this episode is that it's, it's about that choice. Like if you want to go back to aspects of your identity and yourself and your raising and all of those things, having the ability to do that and kind of take what is valuable and important to you and has taught you something 
and kind of leave what you know isn't doing that it's it's really is all about choice like the parts of home that you want to hold dear and I think we definitely get that from this story especially in that realization of like I like maternal I don't love momness and forced momness on me it's it's what makes the story super special Sarah yeah and with that thank you so much for sharing this with us you're always one of our favorite authors and and favorite hosts as well (laughs) you're an alum we love you here and and thank you so much for this piece of course That concludes our sixth episode of the fifth season, The Way Back Home. We're all so excited to bring you new stories soon, amplifying these young voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, as well as our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon, and good night! Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.